it's time for the Chip Race. Hello and welcome to the Chip Race Season 3. Unibet Poker still have our back, so this time it didn't take us two years to get back on the airwaves. I'm your host David Lappin alongside Daryl Kearney. And boy oh boy do we have a great show for you tonight. We'll be chatting to Irish Tournament Director Extraordinaire Big Nick O'Hara. Ian will be catching us up with all the news and results from a busy month at the World Series of Poker. In our strategy segment, Dara will tell us when it's a good time to call in a satellite. All before we sit down with tonight's huge headline guest, the charming and super talented WSOP presenter, 888 ambassador and Irish Open runner-up, Cara Scott. But first... Satellites. In the words of poker laureate William Kasouf... In for the min to get the max, smiley face, laughing face, bag of money emoji, rocket ship emoji, winky face, fire emoji, tongue out winky face, fist bump, champagne emoji, eggplant emoji. Dara, nobody wants to pay full price. Everybody likes to get entry to a tournament for a fraction of the cost. Over your career, you have earned the reputation as something of a satellite beast. When did you first realize it was a format you were particularly good at? Yeah, basically the, the the history of this kind of is that when I started playing online uh, after a sort of a period as a as an online cash player, um, I moved into sit and goes because they were sort of like low variance, and then sit, sit and go action started to dry up, and sit and goes generally got tougher around two thousand ten, two thousand eleven. So I was looking for some way to get into uh, something else, and tournaments was the obvious one. So I asked different people different advice, and one of the pieces of advice I was given by a number of different people was um, you should target satellite tournaments because, well, there, there are a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, the fields tend to be softer. You have a lot of um, recreational players who are trying to qualify for live events. Uh, and then secondly, with your with my ICM background in sit and goes, I would be better suited to that than in tournaments where the where ICM is not 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 as big a factor. So I, I sort of give um, satellites a serious lash around 2010 2011 and quickly found that it was an incredibly lucrative uh, form of poker for me. And most of my profit over the the next two years or so came exclusively from satellites. Now, obviously, the offshoot of that is you end up having to play a lot of live tournaments. So did that sort of put the onus on you to get out of the house and travel to every live event that was available absolutely yeah the reason why i sort of played satellites was to was, was to try and make money and qualifying for the event was sort of not the main goal the main goal was to qualify for it 10 times so that i got the uh, the, the the additional tournament dollars once 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 sites started introducing tournament dollars but it did mean that i had to go and play in the tournament as well and that actually turned out to be a real um a bonus because it meant you know suddenly I went from just grinding sit and goes at home to playing EPTs, playing World Series main event, uh, playing UK IPTs, playing pl- playing all these different tours and uh, going going to lots of nice places and meeting meeting lots of interesting people. Okay, well that's all very well and good for the the top class pro who's a who's a beast on the tables and a particular beast at the uh, at that format. If you're a recreational player, what's in it for you to be playing a a satellite online you know obviously you want to play the target event maybe you don't want to you know stump up all the money you know why log online and play on a thursday night to get into the weekend's tournament yeah i think if you want to get into uh, tournaments that maybe you, you you don't have the sufficient budget or bankroll um a satellite's the obvious way to go i also think that like for everybody satellites are softer tournaments in general than uh, uh, than most mtts and if you if you play um you know the 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 tougher tournaments, then you're going to have more uh, top top uh, regular players in them. But when you play the satellites, you have a lot of players like yourself, so you have as much chance as anybody else, and you get possibly the chance to qualify for a Unibet Open or a Unibet UK 
tour, go and play the event, and even if you don't cash, at least you have the the, the experience of the of, of the weekend and the trip. And what about the live satellites? So we, we talked a little bit about online ones there, and you can play them all during the week, win 10 packages like you described. Uh, what are the, the live satellites like the night before the event? Uh, well, they tend to be the best tournaments at, at, at the festival because you basically have have live players who want to qualify for the event but have not yet managed to do so. So almost by by, by definition they're, they're 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 going to be quite soft. There's and a bit of desperation. Yeah, there's a bit of desperation and and you know maybe it's the people who've taken tw- t- 10 or 20 shots and haven't qualified already so you know they might not be the best satellite players anyway. Um so uh, those those do tend to be great uh, tournaments just in themselves. Well, thank you for that, Dara. Later in the show, we do want to talk to Dara again about some specific satellite hands, maybe bring that back up during his strategy piece. Looking forward to that. Thank you, David. Uh, we're joined now by uh, tournament director extraordinaire uh, Nick O'Hara. Uh, Nick, welcome to the Chip Race. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Delighted to have you here. Uh, Nick, you are known on the circuit for being a bit of a diplomat, I think it's fair to say. A <laughs> uh, number of times I've seen you de-escalate potential meltdowns or pour water on existing firestorms. Is <laughs> too many to count over the years. Were you always somebody with this calm demeanour or is that something you developed as a TD? Um, no, I was always quite calm. Uh, my wife says pressure is for tyres. It's not no use in a poker room and she's right. <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah, just take it it is what it is if people get fired up over a situation well no point in me getting fired up with them just try and calm it down and sort it out and move on yeah one thing i've noticed about your technique is you always seem to take a pause in fact i remember phil baker joking once that if if, if you ask nick any question even a really simple question like what's your name there's going to be a 20 second pause before <laughs> there's any answer um and i used to be a referee too and that that, that was kind of one of the skills of refereeing right. too just letting a few seconds pass yeah uh, before yeah. to kind of defuse the situation so what's the worst incident you ever had to defuse the worst behavior by a player and, and i know you're looking at david now so i'm hoping you're not <laughs> <laughs> um the worst incident I ever had. Um, I remember in the early days during EPT Barcelona, uh, we had such incredible numbers of players arriving at the events. It just wasn't possible to seed everybody. And it resulted in long queues and waiting times and that type of thing, huge alternate queues. Like I recall calling alternate number 465 and that kind of thing. And... You know, there was players understandably getting very agitated and it was warm and all that type of thing. Um, but, the, yeah, I'd say that se- that season in Barcelona, just standing there dealing with the level of anger with people who were so frustrated trying to get into tournaments and we were doing our absolute best to get them in and we just couldn't get them in. Um, that's probably the most anger I had to deal with See, he's even given us a diplomat's answer to a question there <laughs> you know still completely avoiding throwing anyone under the bus yeah. there yeah. so he's already canning this interview down <laughs> uh, no but uh, seriously though like what other jobs do you think you could have applied the same demeanor to I always imagine you'd be a really good hostage negotiator <laughs> well I'm from an adventure sports background there are high pressure situations where if the guy in charge looks flustered and under pressure then everybody else is going to feel it so I think a lot of it probably came from the adventure sports background where the guy in charge just had to act 
calm and you know looks oh this is no problem we always do this <laughs> well speaking of high pressure situations one of the things i've noticed you have almost always at, at, it seems to be at, at most of the tour events one of the jobs you're given is is uh, the bubbles of these uh, satellites all right so you do a lot of those late now you do the late shift usually yes or maybe you're doing boat shifts i don't know sometimes i've seen you doing these 24 hour shifts but uh, uh, I know that policing the bubble has become a bit of an issue in poker. Yes. Uh, particularly in satellites where stalling has become more common. I remember a chat you had with yeah. myself and Dara Davy in Barcelona a little over a year ago where you asked us yeah. from a player's perspective what we thought uh, yeah. you could do. I think we, we threw a few ideas at you, but it's fair to say that's a, a conversation happening in the maybe the TD community of what to do in those spots. It is. We have discussed it. And... Um, I think it's become culture, certainly on the bigger buy-in events where the money bubble is is very significant. And I found in the bigger buy-in events, a lot of the players have percentages of each other and there's a lot of business that seems to be going on. And even the people at the table nearly don't want the other guy to bust because they've got percentages of them. So there's a huge amount of stalling going on. Um, we have discussed, and one feeling was very much... Uh, you know, look, it's the player's time. If they want to stall, let them stall. And life goes on and uh, it's their time. Um, but we discussed and felt that we had a responsibility to say, no, look, we have to run as clean a game as we can. We need to investigate solutions to this, which there aren't many. Um, on the bigger buy-in events, the players were asking us to go hand-for-hand hand two or three players out off the money, which initially I was against because I just felt, well, where is it going to end? Does that mean next year we're going hand-for-hand hand six or seven players off the money? Sure. But um, it turned out to be quite successful, actually, where the stalling just stopped. There was no benefit in stalling, and next of all, it was flying around the table. So on the bigger buy-in events... I think it has definitely proven to be a good thing to go hand-for-hand hand that little bit early, two or three places off the money. And certainly in the bigger, faster main events, like the likes of the IPO, we've got to go hand-for-hand hand three or four players off the money because you're losing so many players so fast. On the regular tournaments, I think I've just adopted a strategy where if they begin to stall, I usually stop the clock. I make an announcement to players and say, look, guys, we have to run a clean game. Can we all agree to just play the tournament the way it's meant to be played? If we suspect that people are stalling, we'll potentially look at their cards. If we feel they were intentionally on the clock down, that we'll give the guy a penalty or we'll deal with the guy. Um, but yeah, I think it is part of the nature of what's happening with people stopping so many percentages and it's a difficult one to deal with but it's that pragmatism that i think is so important dara i'd, I'd say you've uh, experienced that speech of nick's uh, a few times where he comes over and he you start, it's almost like the headmaster's coming over to tell you all at the beginning of the school tour that you have to behave yeah, yeah. <laughs> for the rest yeah. of the day but it does have an impact people do it respond does to have it. an impact nine does, times yeah. out of ten it works yeah. you know and, and the players go okay and we just pick off and off we go next of all it's all in and call all in and call yeah, like I think one of the problems here is that professional players obviously understand that it's in their financial interest to stall. So they see it as part of their job, and if they're not stalling, they're not doing their job. Yeah. But at the same time, you can kind of shame them out of it. And if 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 it, nobody wants to look bad, even you know, even if they still have the argument, well, it's part of my job. So I think you can kind of get them to move along. What do you think about the idea of a shot clock, uh, good or bad? I wouldn't be a big fan of it. I think if we can get the players to play a clean game and continue the game as the normal flow I would be in favour of that perhaps 
in a year's time if it escalates you know to a point where it's you know certainly it has it's something that wasn't there four years ago this has crept in i think within the last four years maybe in a year or two time it's going to be even worse and we'll review it again but i would prefer to try to avoid shot clock if i could fair enough uh one of the things like uh being based in Ireland, I'm obviously aware at, full, at first hand that the Irish live poker scene did kind of suffer for a few years after the financial collapse. It seems to be kind of rebounding now, and it's, in a sense it's been built from the ground up with the small buy-ins. Yes. Uh, the Irish Poker Series is your new baby. Um, I think you ran your first event there recently, wasn't it? We did, yeah. yeah I, I unfortunately up. didn't get along to it, but there was a lot of excitement about it. A lot of people talking to me about right. you know, they were going to play it, was I going to play it, and so on. Uh, so, yeah, maybe if you could just explain to us what the idea behind the Irish Poker Series is. Um, I was travelling a huge amount over the past four, five, six years, and I, my personal life was suffering, and I was looking at how much longer can I do this? Is it the lifestyle that I want in five, six, ten years' time? And I said, no, it's not. So I started playing with the idea of reducing my amount of travel and going back to Ireland and putting together an Irish poker tour. And I had great visions of TV tables and leaderboard points and all of this kind of thing. So I spoke with um, Brian Lannan and Larry Santo uh, and we came up with the idea of Irish Poker Series, which was going to be an Irish poker tour with big prize pools for small buy-ins. We do have a live stream and table that we're hoping to bring to some of the stops. We're looking at an award ceremony. We're looking to crown an Irish poker champion. So all of these ideas came together, and we have put together Irish Poker Series, which you can find out more on on irishpokerseries.com. We have four stops in our national tour, which are, is the PokerStars Megastack um, series so we have a Leinster, Munster, Connacht and Ulster stop. Our next one of those is in Clonmel on the 21st of July and it should be great crack, we're just telling players look, pack, pack the car come on down, enjoy Clonmel there's 50k guaranteed for 170 buy-in, we've live music beer pong, all other sorts of games, it's just going to be great crack the way it was back in the day. Planning on going home, I live in Malta these days, I'm planning on going home to Dublin for uh, the month of July, so I'm definitely going to try and check Brilliant. that one out in Clonmel, it sounds like great fun, and again, you mentioned Larry there uh, as one of your partners, great guy as well, yeah. I'm sure it's a pleasure to work with him. Absolutely, and Brian too. We've put together another tournament, uh, the Mammoth, which is a €100,000 guaranteed prize pool for a €120 tournament. Oh, I smell overlay. <laughs> Don't say yeah. that. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's going to be a hard one to call, I think. Um, but, yeah, the Irish market has bounced back. So Yeah, yeah it's certainly an ambitious target. There's no doubt about that. Well, Nick, you talked about uh, wanting to sort of maybe put a bit of manners back on your life, all these, you know, long trips. And mm. it seems like the trips would have ran into each other nearly yes. in some of those years. I remember seeing you, uh, I think it's fair to say, a little, like, you were always just there and doing an amazing job. But it also sometimes seemed like you were never not there. Yeah. And I always worried, I was, and I would talk to you and you'd tell me that you also you know, sometimes don't sleep very well. Yeah. So you'd be up uh, late at night working on another project that you have yes. uh, during that time, which I believe is going to be now, I assume it's going to be the, the route to passive income. You can sit back yeah. in, your, in your heyday and just watch the, the Kay Holden money roll in. <laughs> would you tell our listeners a bit about Kay Holden before you go? Yes, Kay Holden is a software program that um, I got involved in Six years ago and uh, they're an, a Sicilian based company and 
I originally bought K Holden product from them for the IPO back around six years ago. And when I bought it, it it had the nuts and bolts of a product, but it was quite problematic and we needed a lot of extra features. So I worked very closely with the guys from K Holdem over the last number of years and usually it would be at an event where we tried to do something we say, Oh, wouldn't it be great if K Holdem could do X, Y or Z? And I would contact the guys, Tony is the main point of contact there, and say, Tony, any chance we can add this to the software? And he'd say, ah, one moment. And he'd do it, and, you know, this was how it just evolved over the number of years. So we now have a fantastic product. Um, It's a registration system, clock system. It sends the live updates onto any website so that players at home can follow the action sitting at home. They can see what players are on each table, what their chip count is, their previous results. It's just fantastic at this stage. Well, look, from, from Darren and I, thank you so much for joining no, thank us Thank you for having me. Thank we, you, Nick. We thank really you. appreciate it. And now it's time for Ian Simpson with the news. Hello, and welcome back to the Trip Race. And here's the most important part of the show, the news. The most... Hang on a minute, Ian. This is the part that almost got cut out now at the, at the last uh, Chip Race meeting. You know, the, the new segment was on the chopping block. We only just about kept it in. Get, are you serious? I'm serious. Is this why I'm not invited to the meetings? Because I'm going to get fired. Possibly, possibly. Fuckers. Fuckers. Listen, listen. Everyone out there, you need to vote for the news. You need to just send messages in saying how important it is. Uh, okay. Now, anyway. Uh, Rick Trigg had a really good week. He managed two notable second places. Uh, one in the high roller on Party Poker and one in the heavyweight Rocky. He scored four and a half grand and five and a half grand respectively. So not, not too bad results for him. Uh, ben Dobson, also known as Phoenix35, had two nice scores this week. He managed to win the Hot 215, uh, not a not an easy feat, uh, for seven and a half grand, and he got a second place finish in the Big 750 for another uh, two grand. Very well done to him. Former newsman Dara Davy, he managed two deep runs, one on Titan Poker in the Sunday Premium, coming fourth for 1900, and a third place finish in the Starter on Winamax for 1300. Well done to him. Uh, the live scene is obviously uh, a buzz with World Series hype. Um, our very own Kenny Hallett had a successful summer so far. He's had 10 caches, uh, including two final tables, and uh, one of which was a third place finish in a 5K for $239,000. And let me tell you, those 5Ks are not soft comps. Uh, Deborah Wally Roberts, uh, a favorite of the poker community managed to get second place in the ladies event for 83k i imagine the rail for that event was uh jumping so very well done to her chris moman uh is had 10 caches at the world series including a win in the 3k six max for just shy of half a million dollars congratulations to moman on his first bracelet excellent result benny glazer bit of a mixed game crusher uh i haven't i felt it feels like i haven't got a day without being on Facebook and seeing him on my newsfeed. Um, he's had three World Series final tables, uh, with his best result being a runner-up finish in the 10K stood high-low for just shy of $200,000. Excellent results there, Benny. Chris Brammer bested an elite field of 505 entrants in the No Limit Hold'em 5K for $527,000. And Harry Lodge managed third in the 888 Crazy 8s event for $345,000. Very well done to those those guys. 
A uh, couple of Irish highlights. Uh, Mark McDonald got fourth in event 20, the Millie Mega, for $421,000. And former November 9er Owen O'Day managed to get sixth place in the 10K PLO for $143,000. Uh, I've been forced to mention one other result because no one likes to, you know, plug Lappin. So he's he's make he's making me uh, plug him. He made up some bullshit excuse. He got fifth place finish in the Deep Stack Open in the Laura de Mar. Congratulations, I guess. Who was that? Who did that? Some 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 Who got that result? Gobshite. Some gobshite. <laughs> Well, well, look, I obviously have to start with that uh, fantastic result from uh, our host, uh, David Lappin, in Loret Del Mar. Uh, fantastic. i got to say, actually, genuinely, Hannah Har, amazing venue. Uh, I, I'm not at the World Series this year. I never go. But uh, So I tried to pick off some of these nice, like, soft 501Ks around Europe. Uh, this place is gorgeous. It's a real uh, special venue, gorgeous part of Spain on the Costa Brava. Uh, was lucky enough. I, I ran well in that tournament, managed to get fifth place. Got looked after so well by the man who runs the DSO, Alex Henry, top bloke. And the next DSO is going to be in Malta at the end of this month. Uh, and there will be satellites running on the dot-com. This is something people have been asking us about. There will be satellites running on the dot-com client over the next couple of weeks so if you fancy trying to satellite into a, a last minute holiday to uh, malta with a bit of poker included i'd say jump on that one immediately can i just point out can i just point out that you need to say which client the dot com client i said dot com dot com i did for who for who, for who? whose client is it on for unibest.com there for, you go you haven't said really unibest once we work for these guys. You gotta, you gotta plug them. Oh, for fuck's sake! Okay, I'll go back and fix that. <laughs> They're paying the fucking bills, and you're just. <laughs> I wouldn't fix it. I would just leave it the way it is. You can just leave all this in as well. Brilliant. <laughs> just leave all yeah. this in as well. It's yeah, fun. perfect. Um, yeah, on the unibet.com client. I swear. I'll just, I'll just record myself saying unibet and stick it in. I'll, I'll, I'll just tape it in um, a few weeks ago I do want to mention as well uh, up and coming Irish live pro Lee Egan won the mammoth that Nick O'Hara referred to earlier in this show taking home over 15k for just 120 quid buy in adding to the 30k he won back in November when he took down the Fitzwilliam festival so uh Kudos to him on that. Uh, some good results that aren't Vegas related. Uh, of course, on the Vegas stuff, Deborah, uh, obviously phenomenal results, second place. I'm sure she'd be disappointed not to win the bracelet. She, of course, took third in the UK Tour Brighton event. That's the Unibet UK Tour Brighton event <laughs> back in March. Um, uh, we had great fun with her that, that week as well. She was chip leader with five to go, I remember, in that event, and unfortunately it fell in third. But a uh, couple of back-to-back -back great results for Deborah. so congrats. Uh, to her on that the next uk tour event will be in nottingham uh, in just a couple of months time so you know satellites running all the time on the unibet.com client get 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 on that um you mentioned mormon my god you mormon and his 15 million in online winnings and 25 plus triple crowns uh finally wins a bracelet what an absolute beast and a gentleman of the game we'll be hoping to chat to him in a later show uh phenomenal results oh what a, what a beast huh yeah, I mean, is, is, you read his book? Uh, I have read his first book, not the new one. He'll be, uh, he'll be in out. here plugging I don't think the new one's one. out yet. Oh, maybe it's not uh, out yet. He might give us a free copy or something. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be good, that'd be good. Uh, yeah, his book's really good as well, so very pleased for him. 
Yeah, phenomenal stuff. And then, of course, you mentioned Mark McDonald and Harry Lodge. I just wanted to kind of point out here, 7,761 runners in Mark McDonald's Millie Maker field and 8,120 runners in Harry Lodge's Crazy Eights field. So that's just they're ridiculous fields to ply your way through. Just incredible effort from both of them. Uh, really bodes well as well. Big day 1As and 1Bs in the main event, which is, of course, have just kicked off in the last day or so. Uh, really boding well for the biggest World Series main event in quite a while well listen i'm glad the news is back i didn't want to lose this segment ian uh, i think you've done a great job you know all, all oh, things being equal we locked you in a toilet for the first few weeks fair is fair i think you've done a phenomenal job so i look forward to future uh, broadcasts from you oh you're so sweet thanks man thanks for now <laughs> no worries take care well, as promised earlier in the show, uh, we said we would take a look at a strategy hand that involved a satellite. Darrow Carney, obviously a bit of a satellite guru, as many know him to be. Um, Darrow, when we look at satellite situations, um, and I guess when you coach them, a lot of the emphasis tends to go on how uh, tight you have to make calls. That, that obviously makes a lot of sense. ICM is really extreme. And uh, a lot of the time we're, we're folding hands that seem like a, a snap call in almost all other poker situations. That being said, there are other situations where calling pretty wide seems like the, the, the correct move. And I wanted to have a little look at those just for counterbalance, if you like. Can you construct a, a situation for us where people maybe don't need to, uh, you know, put the handcuffs on? Sure, yeah. Uh, like when I coach satellites, I guess the biggest shock for people who come into them from the outside and don't know anything about ICM or, or, or satellites... Um, is how tight you have to call and the, the huge folds you sometimes have to make in satellites. And I think the last time we talked about this on the show, we gave a situation where aces would actually be a fold. I find once I explain that to people, uh, they can they take it on board very quickly, but sometimes they go too much the opposite way then and they start thinking that, you know, it, in every situation you're a bubble, um, it's a fold if somebody shoves on you. And that's definitely not the case. Um, there was a case I had with a student recently where he was in a satellite. Uh, there were five people left, four seats, so basically the exact bubble. Um, but he was quite short relative to the average. Um, the stacks were roughly, uh, three of the guys had about 50 big blinds each, and they were completely safe, more or less. Um, he had 10 big blinds, so he's a lot shorter than they are. But the other guy only had five big blinds. So the way you have to kind of think about the situation is, given that the three big stacks are more or less safe, it's basically a race between the other two guys. And since he has twice as many chips um, as the other guy, he's probably a two-to-one favorite to win that fourth seat, which he has to take into account uh, when, when deciding to call a shove. Now... If one of the big stacks shoves on him, he has to call super tight because even if he doubles up, he's still not safe. I mean, he, he, he does improve his situation, you know, 20 big blinds relative to the other guy's uh, five big blinds. So he's now four times more likely. So he, he, let's say he goes from a 66% shot to an 80% shot. But if he loses, he goes from a 66% shot to a 0% shot. So, you know, that's why he has to call so tight. And by tight there, do you mean like folding kings and queens? I do, yeah, yeah. Actually, when you when, when I ran the mats on this spot, the only hand he could call with if a big stack shoved, even if the big stack is shoving super wide, say the say the guy gets around to the button and he knows that the the two blinds are short, so they're probably not going to want to call. Even if he shoves super wide, you can still you still need aces to call basically. Uh, that's the that's the only hand where like you 
think about what you're risking. As I said, like you're you're probably picking up about fifteen percent in equity. You're going from you know sixty five percent roughly to eighty percent to win the seat if you if you win. But you're losing sixty five percent if you lose. So you basically need to be a four to one favorite. And aces is the only hand that's a four to one favorite against um, almost any hand the guy's shoving. Like if you call with kings, for example. Okay, you're a four to one favorite if the if the guy turns over pocket twos, but if he turns over ace x, you're not a four to one favorite. Um, or even if he cl- turns over something like six seven suited, it's pretty much close to whether uh, you know it's it's more or less just four to one. So that's why kings becomes a fold there. Um, but as I said, if the small stack shoves, that's a different situation because now you have a big upside. Uh, like if you win the hand. You're, you've got the seat basically because you've knocked the short stack out. Game over. Yeah, it's game over, exactly. So so you've gone from being a 66% shot to being a 100% shot. If you lose, effectively the stacks kind of switch. Um, so you, you, you become the short stack now with five big blinds. He becomes the bigger stack with 10 big blinds. So he's now the 66% shot. You're the 33% shot. So you've only like lost 33% and you stand to gain 33% if you win. So... Actually, in this situation, even though you would think because it's a nice uh, a, a satellite bubble, ICM is huge, it's not actually that big because the amount of uh, equity that you pick up when you win is about the same as what you'll lose um, if you lose the hand. Yeah, the way you've constructed it there, Dara, uh, I guess, and, and this was the hand that your student faced, the three stacks are so far, at you know, they're so far away from us that we're at sea from them. Yes, of course, it's possible for the five and ten big blind to pull them back into it, but it's going to take ages and ages. Obviously, to simplify this, you've sort of made it seem like there's two guys fighting for one seat here. In reality, each of the um, the big stacks probably has like a 97% chance of locking it up. They're not completely locked in, but it does simplify the equation, I guess, to put it this That's way. That's true, yeah. There, uh, like, I am simplifying. You're right. It's, it's probably about 97% for the other guys, 97 98% somewhere around that region. And then, you know, we're not quite 66%. We're probably maybe 63%, and the, and the short stack's probably not 33%. He's probably 30% as a result. And, uh, like, we've all... You've, you've played almost as many satellites as I have, and you, I'm sure you've seen situations, too, where you can actually go from being, like, one of five to being the guy who bubbles um, without doing anything wrong. It does happen sometimes, unfortunately. It does, does happen, and it hurts like hell when it happens. So, like, yeah, you're, you're, you're never a total lock in a satellite. Um... Uh, so yeah, that's a, that, that's a good point. But to return to like the actual ranges, uh, like in in this specific scenario, when it's folded around to the small blind, he should obviously shove a very wide range of hands. He actually prefers shoving into you than anybody else because if he doubles up through you, not only does he double up to ten big blinds, but he cuts you back down to five. So he greatly increases his chances. Whereas if he doubles up to somebody else, he just joins you. Uh, at 10 big blinds so he's roughly a 50 50 shot now for the seat he doesn't greatly damage the other guy i would guess in this situation he's meant to shove pretty wide though and we're probably meant to call yeah. pretty wide yeah yeah that's exactly right like he's supposed to shove basically about 75 percent of hands uh and just to put that in context i mean obviously that's any pair any ace any king it's even any queen any jack so any picture card uh, and then even hands as weak as six five off four three suited seven six off uh, you know they all become shoves as well and then the calling range um, 
has to be pretty wide as well because first of all you know that he's shoving very wide um, so you're supposed to call roughly two-thirds of hand 66% so a bit tighter than he's shoving but still very very wide I mean you're you're calling hands as weak as jack four off ten three suitors um, seven five suitors those types of hands yeah, now in this situation, obviously there's probably, uh, if there's five guys at the table, that's probably a small blind worth of antis. So there's two big blinds to be won. Those two big blinds in relation to a five big blind shove are actually quite significant. Yeah, that's that's a really good point because a lot, a lot of these spots when we're talking about folding, it's because when we fold, we don't greatly hurt our chances um, or increase the other guy's chances. But in this case, that's, not, that's actually not true. I mean, if we fold with the antis in there, he's basically going to pick up uh, two big blinds so he's going to move from five big blinds down to so up to seven big blinds we're moving down from 10 big blinds to nine big blinds you know we started the hand two to one favorite against him now we're only a nine to seven favorite against him when we fold um so there's a there's a fairly significant downside to folding and just and just giving him those um big blinds and antis uncontested now, now the one final observation i want to make about this hand because it's a really interesting one is that in these situations, it almost reverts back to a non-ICM situation. So when you're playing against an opponent, maybe in normal game circumstances, and you're blind v blind, five big blind shows into ten, these are probably not far off those ranges. Yeah, exactly. If you're looking at something like Snapshove, uh, like normally in a satellite, you're making a mistake. But in this situation, as you said, ICM does kind of go out the window. Um, like... If ICM wasn't a factor, the small blind should be shoving 78% of hands, which is about what he's supposed to shove here, um, 76%. And the big blind, when ICM isn't a factor, should be calling 75% of hands. And that goes down a bit to 66% uh, in this case, but not, not, not dramatically, like you're, you're only shaving off uh, the bottom 9%. As I said, like the way to think about it uh, in these situations is what's the upside and what's the downside. The upside here, if we approximate uh, the chances of the two shorter stacks of, of winning the seat to be 66% and 33%, the upside is you go from 66% up to 100%. So the upside is, is 34%. The downside is you become the 33% shot. So you're only losing the same amount. So the, the clearest indicator that ICM isn't actually really a factor here. Yeah, it's a fascinating example, Darren. Thank you for bringing it to our attention. I guess in these situations, a big stack shoves into you. ICM is huge. But when it's the two shortest guys together, it actually becomes as small as it can possibly be in this scenario. Yeah, completely. Well, look, that's a really good hand. Thank you for bringing it to us, Darrow Kearney. We are joined now by WSOP main event presenter, 888 ambassador and 2009 Irish Open runner-up, one of the most famous, most recognisable and respected people in the game of poker, Cara Scott. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us on the show. Well, that was such a nice introduction. Thank you. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here with you both. You'll be in the thick of it at the WSOP Um I think when this show goes out, but I wanted to start off by going back to your beginnings, if that's okay. Uh, oh boy. I know, yeah. Something which I'm not sure many people know about you, uh, and I'm sure they probably wouldn't guess because of what I naturally are in front of the camera, is how you grew up on a, for a farm in a remote, freezing cold part of Alberta, Canada, and your childhood was largely spent on that farm playing games and reading voraciously. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and that, what that was like? Um, sure. Yeah, it, it is very different from the way my life has turned out. And it does kind of make me sit back on my heels sometimes and wonder how on earth I got here. You know, like, and I mean, I live in Slovenia in Europe, 
as this Canadian person and I work in television and poker and I get to go to all these amazing places. But I did actually, yeah, grow up uh, on a very small farm. It wasn't even, it wasn't uh, like an industrial farm at all. It was basically more of a subsistence farm. We had a cow for milk and we had chickens for eggs and we had a huge garden so that we could grow, you know, uh, vegetables and fruit. And my dad went hunting every autumn so that we would have meat. And uh, it was a pretty incredible way to grow up. We didn't have really running water until I was a teenager. I'm, uh, it's hard to remember back that far, but uh, I, I'd say I was like 14, maybe 13, 14, 15 years old before we had an indoor toilet for the first time. Um, so yeah, <laughs> and it was cold. It was really cold. <laughs> um, and after high school, you went to university in England where you did a teaching degree and a linguistics degree. Then you moved to London, I think at the age of 24 and became a teacher at what I think a BBC document referred to as the worst school in England. What was that like? That was pretty incredible for me. Because um, yeah, even when I did my my education, my teaching practice, it was all, you know, still very Canadian schools. And it was all sort of what I understood. So first of all, I, I moved to England as the first time I actually left the country. And that was a kind of a big culture shock for me, not just living in England, but living in London, which was, I mean, for a small town girl, the way I was, especially London is massive. So working at schools there, I didn't have a lot in common at first that I could see with a lot of the kids, you know, their, their school experience was so vastly different to what my school experience had been. So teaching was, um, it was a challenge. And then being at that school in particular, they'd closed it down and it was like, um, uh, they were using it as a fresh start school is what they called it. Um, because they shut it down, gotten rid of all of the teachers, which is a terrible thing to do. And then tried to reopen it as like, a a beacon school, you know, so that people could look up to it. And it just failed miserably. And it failed not just, you know, emotionally, but like technically, it was actually a failing school. We failed our Ofsted. A lot of the teachers, like something like 70% maybe of them quit by the end of the first year, just were like, no, we can't, this isn't a school. So that was pretty intense. Yeah. I felt like I was in over my head. A lot of us were first year teachers too. They had this idea that for some reason, you know, all of these brand new fresh teachers would come in and it would be like some sort of movie, you know, where you go in and inspire all the kids. Well, no, you can't. We had no idea what we were doing. We were like flailing around trying to do just basic discipline in the classrooms, getting them to sit down. I think the first couple of weeks that the, the school was open, we didn't even have a proper schedule. So every single day we'd get a new schedule. It'd be like, oh, those three classes that you taught history to yesterday, well, you don't teach them anymore. Now you're teaching religious education to a completely different year. And so, you know, the kids just got, they got the worst end of that stick, absolutely. Uh, I've been going backward and forwards doing it for most of my adult life. And it, it seems to me that the education system in, in common with a lot of things in, in the UK, uh, other aspects of government funded systems suffered by the political changes, say, that came out of the Thatcher era. Because in, so, in some ways, you know, schools are almost seen as a band-aid. You, you, you guys have to deal with um, these very underprivileged kids, but they have much wider social problems. Um, and, and, and there's, you know, there's very little you can do. That must be pretty frustrating. 
It is. I mean, I think one of the biggest things that I learned by being a teacher that first year in that first school, that was my first experience of education really working or not working, was that um, they, they, we actually had to shut the school down for a week because there was kind of a, a riot and, you know, people were hurt and things went very badly wrong. So we shut the school down and they brought in these educators to kind of talk to us all about how to do what they called positive discipline. And they said, one of the things you need to understand is for the, some of these kids, their behaviors, the way that they're acting out, which is difficult in your classrooms, which is making your life and your job hard, these are coping strategies for their life that work. You know, they're not appropriate for the classroom, but they're things that they have learned how to do to live in their situation. And that was like a, a real wake-up call for me. You know, you can't go into the into these schools and think you're going to be this kind of Oh, savior type Michelle person. Pfeiffer. Exactly. Like, it's so <laughs> yuck. It's so gross, isn't it? And you think, no, these are people. These are small, young people, <laughs> and they deserve an education, and we're not giving it to them. And also, they do have all these other, you know, they have so many issues socially, and like you say, because of government funding, a lot of it, that we're trying to just do something where the rest of their life isn't being addressed, you know? poverty, inequality, all of those things. It's, it was a shocking, eye-opening experience for me uh, as, you know, where I came from. Well, from, from that, anyway, <laughs> see, it seems like such a, a weird to segue into anything else, but um, you, 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 you have talked in the past about the roundabout way. I guess you, you got into poker, which is, you know, what you are most famous for, of course. Uh, you were initially a, a, Muay, a Muay Thai boxer, um, and you were offered a gig presenting a show about martial arts, I think specifically on Muay Thai. Um, and from there, there was a backgammon show, I think. And that eventually yeah. led to Poker Night Live, uh, where you were enrolled as their presenter. Uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about those shows? <laughs> yeah, that was kind of wild. I mean, when I quit teaching, I was still doing um, substitute or supply teaching. So I would, you know, phone up in the morning at 7 a.m. and find out an empty school where they needed me to go and teach. And if I wasn't doing that, I was in the gym training because um, I really loved Muay Thai. It was something that, you know, I just, I've always been really fascinated by martial arts. Growing up, martial arts movies were like a really big part of my childhood. So I was spending a lot of time kind of doing those things and one of my trainers told me about a job where he said you know you used to be a teacher you can clearly speak to people maybe you should go for this presenting job because I think you'd be really good for it and I thought well I have no work and I do need money and I guess I could try this kind of weird thing and so I did and I ended up getting that job and it was on Channel 5 in England and I actually was one of the producers of the show as we went on um, so I got production experience. I ended up uh, actually as one of the producers of a martial arts film because of working on that. I'd met a bunch of people. We decided to make a martial arts film, which we did, and that was really exciting. It actually got like proper distribution. It's terrible, so don't look it up, but um, it was kind of fun to do. And then, yeah, somehow I got a backgammon job. The Poker Channel saw my work on this backgammon show and then asked me to come in and kind of be the novice voice on this this TV show that they had where you kind of four hours through the middle of the night, a couple of people sitting at a desk with a locked off camera talk about online poker. <laughs> it's quite a way to learn the game. It really was. 
Yeah, I can imagine. And on the background show, high stakes background, you worked with Paul McGreal, the the man who created the concept of M in poker, later popularized by Dan Harrington. McGreal's certainly no slouch at the poker table either. Did you ever talk poker with him? You know, at that point, I wasn't even thinking about poker. So we never got a chance to talk about it. We just talked about backgammon. Um, and he kind of helped me figure out the game of backgammon in a large way. We actually played together at the World uh, Championship doubles of backgammon in like, I forget where it was, like Monte Carlo or something. I basically just rolled. So, <laughs> and he would like explain to me why he was making the move. Uh, and then I could sometimes move the checkers, but <laughs> um, yeah, it was pretty cool. And then I actually bumped into him just randomly in the halls of the Rio, maybe five years ago. I'm not even sure how long ago. And he was like, so I see you play poker now. And I was like, yeah, yeah. How are you doing? Quack, quack. <laughs> yeah, I remember the quack, quack. The very first World Series I was at, I, I, I heard this going off and, you know, a few tales away from quack, quack. And somebody told me it was Paul McGreal and I didn't know whether to believe him yeah, or not. Yeah, yeah. Well, Cara, from there in 2007, 2008, you were presenting for Sky Poker and the EPT. But I think it's fair to say that was also a bit of a purple patch for you as a player uh, in that kind of period, yeah. uh, 08 and even into 09. You won the Party Poker Sports Stars Championship for Challenge. Uh, you made a deep run in WSOP Maine, of course, which you got loads of coverage for. And uh, mm. you came second, which we all remember you in Ireland, of course, mm. uh, second to Chris Johansson for over 300k at the Irish Open. How did it yeah. feel to crush during that period of time? And also, how loud was uh, sixth place finisher William Kasouf back in those days? Well, first of all, William was not as loud as he is now. I think that he probably would agree with that too. He was very slow though. Um, the final table was really painfully slow. And when we got down to two tables, I think they had to have someone with a clock standing beside him to make sure that he wasn't wasting time. It was pretty painful. Um, but yeah, it, it's always nice to see Will. It's funny that we go back like that far. Um, and yeah, it felt amazing to crush. Are you kidding? My gosh, it was amazing. Like that feeling of kind of knowing what you're doing and feeling comfortable in the game, it was a lot of it down to the fact that I was hitting a really great run. Obviously, I was on the good side of variance, but it felt amazing, so it didn't matter. <laughs> and yeah, the games move on a lot. And I spend most of my time now working in television. And for the last, gosh, I don't even know how long, five, six, seven years, I've been living in areas where progressively I've not been able to play online poker. And so it's definitely affected my my game, I gotta say. And I'm glad that I make my living out of broadcasting now. But I'm really glad I won all that money when I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, it's it's interesting talking about Will there. I, I'm at the World Series at the moment and I saw it firsthand, the effect of the so-called new Kasuf rule. Somebody at my table was clocked yesterday and the tournament director came over, spoke to the dealer and then said, you've got 10 seconds to act. <laughs> so, so the old minute, and, and, and then clock, the next time clock was called, the guy got five seconds. So, uh, and, and, and clock was literally insta-called when it was on him because the chip leader felt that he was stalling for the money. So they're really enforcing the, the rule now to to move the game along uh, it feels they might have gone a bit too far but uh, you 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 also had a long association I think with party from maybe 2009 to 2015 or so what were the highlights for you um, during that period um, I got to do a lot of different television work with them and that was pretty cool like uh, for the first couple of years maybe the first three years that we were together it was 
just this constant stream of like the, we did the big game, we did the Premier League, the European Open, the World Women's Open, um, like just so many different things. And okay, so they were all basically the same show, but <laughs> with different <laughs> players, but it's but beside the point. It was nice to actually really feel like I was figuring out Oh, I'm going to say figuring out my craft, but then that sounds kind of wanky, doesn't it? But yeah, figuring out my craft, <laughs> you know, in front of the camera. And I liked that. I liked being able to kind of stretch myself and go to these cool places and, and yeah, figure out how to be a TV broadcaster kind of on the fly. Well, it was kind of a golden era for, for poker on TV. I guess post-Black Friday, obviously, that all got less and less and less. But it's no surprise then that during that time, as you were wankily honing your craft, uh, <laughs> you, you end up getting picked up by, I guess, the, the best show for poker on TV, which was high-stakes poker. Uh, certainly, I think any poker player worth their salt used to tune into that every week uh, religiously. I, I'm just such a huge fanboy of Gabe Kaplan. He sort of goes way yeah. back into the, the history of poker. You know, he, he he's right there with Stu Unger, even in, in, in those photographs and the really old mm -hmm. stuff. So, uh, like, amazing to work with him and obviously AJ. Um, uh, what was what was that like for you? Were, were you almost, like, re recognizing that you were suddenly now becoming part of like really mainstream poker now? I know you were in the UK and Europe maybe, but really like poker is in America, a, a much different animal. And now you are part of that machine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I decided to move to the States and try to work in television there, it was kind of a, it was a big choice for me. I had been actually working with stars before that on the EPT. And we were talking about me renewing my contract with them and, you know, I'd just done really well in the World Series and I'd had that great result in the Irish Open and I wanted to do more television and the EPT was a show that I really liked working on. But I, I mean, I just felt like I couldn't, there were a lot of reasons that I, I didn't renew my contract with them, but one of them was so that I could move to the States and try to do something that was, yeah, like you say, more mainstream in North America. And I was really lucky that Maury Escandani from Poker Productions took a chance on me. Like, I kind of, I mean, I didn't harass him for a meeting, but I, I pushed pretty hard. Like, I'd never really done that before. And I had this really great friend who's a British poker player, Nick Walfall. And he'd been saying oh, yeah. to me, yeah, he was like, you need, to, you need to set up a meeting. You need to set up a meeting. If you want to do anything in your career, this is who you have to talk to. And he kind of pushed me into doing it. And I'm always going to be grateful for that. Because I remember sitting in like the, one of this coffee shop in the Bellagio talking to Maury, who is, you know, beloved. Uh, he's an amazing guy and he knows exactly what he's doing. And he didn't know who I was. Clearly, he kind of looked at, into who I was, but he, you know, he just didn't really know. And so I work in TV, a lot of people do. So he started firing all these questions at me about poker, about odds, about, you know, what does this term mean? What are the odds of this happening? Give me an example of a, a double gut shot, you know, like, and I could answer them. And I saw that it kind of surprised him. And then we had this really great conversation. And then I was able to, yeah, work on high stakes poker and then the World Series with him and now the super high roller bowl with his company as well. And, you know, I was able to be the person at the American poker awards earlier this year to do the speech, to give him a lifetime achievement award. And it was so meaningful to me because I do, I adore him and his whole family. Like I just, I have an enormous amount of actual affection for these people. He's so good at what he does. And 
yeah, it was very cool kind of full circle for me. And another thing you've been very much associated with for the last uh, number of years is the WSOP. Um, could you tell us something about your experience working with them? Oh man. Yeah. I, it's my favorite. I, I love that job, man. A few years ago, <clears throat> we started doing the break desk during the main event, uh, final table. And that was incredible because I'd been the sideline reporter, which is a cool job and I really love it. But to have them say, you know what, we really think you can carry these 10, 15 minute segments on your own. We think you can kind of wrangle Negranu and Helmuth into some kind of order and keep the segments flowing. We trust your abilities to do that. They have continually pushed me to do new things. And that for me is just incredible. This year, you know, we're doing the stream all the way through. So we're doing break desk all the way through, not just the final table. So I'm going to have an enormous amount of work to do between that and the sideline responsibilities. But I love the idea that it's a challenge. Like, I don't even know, what is this, like year seven maybe for me or eight? I'm not sure. And it's so exciting that I get to have a, a new challenge. I love working with those guys. But that really plays yeah. into your strengths as well, Cara, because, you know, there is something like I think we all recognize it kind of sucks doing those uh, busted interviews. Yeah. You, yeah. you get them and you're basically getting a completely deflated human being who hopefully is being somewhat <laughs> stoical at the moment. Uh, but he's probably wearing his disappointment on his sleeve, him or her, of course. And it and it, you do like there's only so much you can get out of a person in that spot. Whereas with the break desk, you, you have much more room to, you know, really like um expand on things and and you know get into the weeds so true so true i mean i don't i wouldn't miss not doing those bust out interviews because they are so hard it's so hard to get anyone to say anything besides yeah i think i played well yeah this hurts and you're like well thanks for talking to me so i could rub it in a little bit harder <laughs> yeah i remember the first time i played on one of those uh, tv shows the thing that i was most terrified about was actually the bust out interview because i know what goes through my head after i bust out and i just thought if i actually say what goes through my head everybody's gonna hate me <laughs> so I, I spent about a week rehearsing my bust out speech <laughs> there's usually just like a darrow O'Carney shape like puff of smoke uh, after the I river card is dealt you yeah. look around he's gone yeah because <laughs> yeah, i don't i don't want to yeah, I don't want to talk to anyone. And uh, the World Series is coming back to Europe this year after a break um, last year. Are you going to be involved in that? You know, I'm not sure if it's set yet, but I'm definitely going to be there. Um, I work with 888 now as well. And so clearly I'm going to be there either working or playing and kind of being an ambassador uh, at the same time. So, yeah, I'm curious to see how that all pans out. That's pretty good. Yeah, and I, I, I think you, you were at an 888 event in uh, Dublin late last year. Uh, I wasn't in Dublin at the time, but um, I saw the publicity for it. Uh, how did that go? Uh, it was really good. It was fun. Um, the Fitzwilliam uh, card room had me come over, and they wanted to do a TV show about their main event, the, their winter festival. And so we did that, and it was like the first time that they had done television, and it was the first time that they had, you know, kind of tried to make this really big thing happen and it was kind of fun to be there and see the groundwork being laid and this very grassroots kind of thing happening and yeah considering that you know I just kind of finished I think at that point I'd just done the final table for the main event at the World Series in Vegas and then I flew back and I had a tiny bit of time off and then I went and did this you know really small intimate card room in, in Dublin and that was it was a cool contrast. 
But I think we both checked that episode out because um, our good friend, Christine Mashman, who I think is probably a massive oh. fangirl of yours, um, was, 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 she, she got wind that they mightn't be putting the show out at a certain point. Maybe there's some issue with the edit or something. And she was heartbroken. And then suddenly it was like going to be on TV the next week. And she was delighted. Yeah. These things take so long, especially if it's the first time you're doing one. Um, making TV is hard. By the time you finish filming it, like you go back, and I'm not saying this is what happened because I wasn't in the edit, but if it's the first time you've done it, all of a sudden you think, oh man, I don't have a transition for this. We don't have a shot that connects that. You know, it's that's when you start writing the list for the next time you do a TV show and you're like, make sure you get all of these things. And so I'm really impressed that they put it together. But add to that the fact that, you know, you also do live stream. Like we did a live stream together what, a couple of years ago at the Irish Open. Yeah. And there's no there's no wiggle room then. That, like the, at least if you've got an editing team, they might be able to like polish the turd. <laughs> but like you're yeah. just like there standing like maybe during the headlights. I know I was anyway. It was my first proper <laughs> gig on a live stream. You were there. You gave me so much lovely advice, actually. I think it, it was uh, hugely uh, heartening for me to be alongside the likes of yourself and uh, Mike Sexton, of course, was there, and uh, yeah. and Emma, and everyone who was there as part of the team, because I was a total newbie, and I think it probably showed in the first few hours. I hope I got into it eventually, but it, it definitely showed. I don't know. I don't think it did. I think we all see that in our own selves so much more than other people see it. Like, yeah, I wouldn't. You reckon yeah, I, I faked it till I made it? Yeah. <laughs> I think you were great. <laughs> uh, yeah, just in relation to the Fitz, the Fitz is our local card club. It's probably where I played more poker than anybody else. I can only imagine how difficult it was to film in there because it's quite, it's quite a, it's not a very big space. I, I think it's actually a converted church, believe it or not. It's very only only in Dublin could a church end up as a casino or a card club. <laughs> I love it, and you know what? They were so kind to me. Everybody who worked there was just like the loveliest they could possibly be. They treated me like an absolute star and they just, I don't know, it was a really nice experience. I'm, I'm glad I got to do it. <laughs> and are there any more uh, events coming up in Dublin or in the UK that our listeners might be interested in? We, we, we have a decent audience in those territories. Nice. Yes, actually, there is one. And I just double checked with my bosses over at 8 at 8. And I can't say dates yet. But I can tell you that there will be, uh, I'm thinking there's going to be a festival, like a mini festival at the very least at the end of the year in Dublin for 8 at 8 Live. And that's pretty exciting. We're also we've got a, a London festival uh, for 8 at 8 coming up as well in October in the meantime. So yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be at both of those. I'm kind of think I'm going to go to Brazil as well in September with eight at eight. So they're treating me awfully well right now. You married the Italian poker player Giovanni Rizzo a few years back, and I know before and during your engagement, you lived in Italy before moving obviously to Slovenia. Uh, you learned Italian, and I believe you're still learning it, uh, and really got into the Italian poker scene. Uh, Italy's obviously one of those ring fence markets. Although I know oh. that there are long term hopes that maybe some of those ring fenced European markets, France, Spain, and others, mm. might eventually share liquidity. But do you think that it would be a good thing? for those markets to come together or do you think something would be lost and there would be a kind of a damage to that community spirit I've heard you talk about in the past that exists within the Italian poker kind of you know fraternity or sorority I think that it would be uh, I think it's necessary I think to have these um the shared liquidity I hope it happens as soon as possible it's so hard to have a poker community when people can't play online you know um it was a really strong community before they did the ring fence. It was their poker in Italy is massive, both live and it was online as well. But, you know, when you have such a small market, it kind of just cannibalizes itself. And then there's 
not very much left. The games can't run very big. People can't really make a living. They have to leave the country. You know, all these people emigrate to different places so that they can still play poker and do their job online. And I think that was actually really harmful to the idea of like the poker community. And then you don't have the investment either. You don't have poker companies coming in running great live events that, you know, are sustainable. So what we need, I think, is that shared liquidity. And I, I just, I really hope it happens soon. Carrie, you have a pretty big and well-respected presence on social media. Uh, one of my favorite things about you is how uh, it's pretty clear that you have no tolerance for rudeness, like zero tolerance. <laughs> and you don't mind calling people out on that behavior whenever it happens. Uh, last yep. season, uh, when talking to John Spinks, actually, uh, whose wife Kat uh, used to work as a dealer, uh, we spoke in detail about the state of the game in terms of staff, uh, particularly mm. female staff and how they're treated. Uh, you've been in the game for over a decade now. Individual instances of ignorance by people aside, which you're always going to get, I guess. Do you think the overall behaviour has improved or disimproved? Huh. I think that it improved a lot over time. Um, just the fact that we were getting more women involved in the game kind of helped. Uh, and then you kind of hit a weird point where there's a kind of backlash. And I'm not sure if this is just my point of view. Like it could be, it very much could be. But at some point it seems like there's this weird backlash where people are like, oh, I'm tired of being polite and being told to be politically correct, which is like the worst phrase ever besides fake news. Politically correct is just like <laughs> not being a dick. Can I say that? Yeah, yes. Yeah. I'll say not being a jerk. It's like having some thought for other people besides yourself, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I think there's a, a, a lot of great people in poker. I really do, and I think there are some that do feel like they're being told to be nice in a way that they don't want to be nice, and so there's kind of a backlash, yeah. Yeah, I, I, by the way, as well, swear, by all means, swear as much as you like on the show. We were forced to put an explicit label on our podcast, thanks to an interview with Neil Farrell about, you know, three episodes ago. So, you know, we're in the clear now. We can say what we want. Well, you might as well use it, right? If you've got the explicit label, then I can say all the words that I, I want. Now I can. Now I'm being Canadian. Those seven banned words on cable TV, yeah, all of them. Uh your, your Twitter handle is Cara OTR, which I believe is a reference to Cara on the rail, a throwback to a podcast you used to do. This is our third season of the chip race. Have you any tips for us? Oh, man, you guys are so much better than we are or were. <laughs> Keep doing it. <laughs> That's, that would be my only tip. Um, it's kind of cool to be able to just listen to people talking about poker in a way that's interesting and funny and their lives kind of surrounding the game as well, not just about the cards and how they fall. I think that's uh, really interesting for me. Kind of when I do a lot of my research for when we used to have the November nine, I would spend a couple of months researching all of the players that we'd be looking at, and a lot of what I did was listen to podcasts because you get such um, a different answer from someone if they know they're going to be talking to you for like half an hour than if they're just trying to give you a sound bite in a minute. So yeah, just keep doing it. Well, it's mostly cool for people like us to get people like you on the show, and I'm really grateful for it. But before I let you go, uh, and I don't know if you made reference to, to it earlier on when you you mentioned uh, getting funding for a movie together. Uh, it, it may not be the same movie, but I have watched a film, a 2008 movie, Sucker Punch, uh, that, you, that you starred in, directed by Malcolm Martin. And uh, starring global, starring global superstar Tom Hardy and Daniel John Jules, serious cult following for that man because I remember him best for playing the cat in the TV show Red Dwarf. 
did, did you not think anyone would dig this up? Because I, I found this so easily and I watched the movie the other night. Um, yes. Had you auditioned for films before? What was it like being on set with people like Tom Hardy? I guess before he really broke into being as big as he is now. And is it possible we'll see you in movies in the future? Oh, no. You'll never see me in a movie in the future. I am a terrible actress. Um, you you weren't. A, you're not a terrible actress. I watch I, I'm going to be really honest here. The very first scene you were in, I don't know if it was shot chronologically, and I remember the, like, the first line you delivered, I was like, ooh, that could be a bit wobbly. And, and then, but then you got really good. Like there was a scene where you were kind of crying, and I was really impressed, to be honest. I thought it was really good. I was probably pinching myself to make myself cry. I've got all the tricks. I'm like properly trained and everything no, I wasn't it was terrible and that's okay um it was it was no it wasn't terrible it was it was an interestingly shot film as well it was very raw oh man you have no idea so the way the film came together Malcolm and I were friends he was actually the he was a commentator for the martial arts show that I did and, and so this was guy, that movie you were talking about oh yeah this is that movie okay. I was actually I'm an associate producer on that film which I'm way more proud of than the fact that I was you know I played the girlfriend of one of the lead characters it was fun but um, yeah we shot it for nothing like almost exactly nothing I know that they poured a lot of their own money into it I helped them staff it, got all of the different kind of positions filled. We figured out the locations. I had never really done proper film production before, so we were all just kind of learning on the fly. And it took us, I'm not even sure how long, maybe a year, maybe two years to film it. So by the time we started and the time we finished, it was there was a big gap, and we were borrowing cameras. There was one point where we were supposed to have this camera to film the next day. We filmed until like midnight. And we were all exhausted. And then we had to start again at 8 o'clock the next morning. But by the time we come back to pick up the camera, it had been sold, someone said. <laughs> so the guy we were borrowing it from, we're like, it was all a little dodgy. Nobody ever really quite figured out what happened. So he gave us this really weird, like, camera that was on the end of this long pole and we were like what the hell are we supposed to do with this we have people that flew in you know we had the the stranglers did the um music for the film as That's well. Right, yeah. like we had some we all pulled in so many favors and it finally came together and i haven't seen the the edit the way it is now but i hope it's better than i remember you never saw your own movie no, I did. I watched it in a theater, a packed theater for the premiere, and that was fun. Although being in the bathroom after the movie and people talking about how bad it was, one girl did come up to me and she was like, you're not very good, but you were one of the best actors in it. <laughs> Brilliant. But to be fair, you, you managed, it was quite an, uh, a casting coup to get Tom Hardy back then. Oh, yeah. Um, I think one of the other producers was friends with Tamar Hassan, who was friends with Tom Hardy. So we got him for like an afternoon and he's like, he does one scene and he's amazing. Um, yeah. Who else did we get um, from Starsky and Hutch, from the original Starsky and Hutch? He played Huggy Bear. Oh, really? Wow. Uh, Antonio Fargas, I think his name is. Yeah. Him, yeah. Like he's in the yeah. in the movie too, which is bizarre. And we had all these fighters that we'd all worked together with for years because you know we worked on this Muay Thai show together. Um, yeah. yeah, it was good fun. 
Well, look, if there's anyone out there who wants to watch uh, the cat from Red Dwarf play a sort of Del Boy kind of character who's a like a boxing promoter, I guess is fair to say. Yeah. Uh, not even box like bare bare knuckle boxing and sort of like just street fighting, really. And also, you're you're pregnant for the whole movie, so it's you don't even get to kick some ass. That's the no, part. That's the bit I was expecting. I know we filmed one scene where I do actually manage to land a punch, but it never made it into the into the movie, which is unfortunate. Um, but that that silly baby bump that I ended up wearing for like like a year or two as we filmed this whole thing, it, it gets bigger and smaller. I did notice that as well. I was going to say that. <laughs> We're like, how many towels did we stuff under this last time? I don't remember. It was like two months ago. Oh, three towels will do. I don't know. Well, look, I, re- I, I really hope that off the back of this, uh, the, uh, the Sucker Punch movie gets a little bump. You know, it just like moves up the, the charts in, in some sort of rental market that's out there. I wish because I was supposed to make money on it and I never did. So, <laughs> oh come on anyone out there definitely check it out um or or at least watch it on like twice speed the whole way through and just like stop for Kara scenes killing me man it is so bad it's so bad it's not bad at all well look Kara, just on behalf of dara and i i, I really want to say a huge thank you to you for joining us for our first episode back in season three it's been a huge treat a huge boon for us to have somebody such as yourself Grace us with your presence. I really do appreciate it. It's so kind of you both. You guys, I really appreciate that. That's that's so nice. (laughs) And all the best with the WSOP coverage, of course, as well. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. And um, thanks for making everyone go out and rent that movie because... That's absolutely not going to make this year awkward and embarrassing at all. Oh, it's going to be great. I can't wait. Yeah. If I, 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 Please just at least like tweet me the next time somebody says I watch. I listened to the Chip Race and I, I, I found it. You can find actually I, I streamed. It. I didn't even pay you money. I feel bad now already because I just I just streamed it online. I found it like a hack right. copy. So look, I'll buy you a pint the next time I see you as, as payment. Yeah, you will. Yeah, that seems fair. You owe me now. It'll be all I ever made out of that film. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you should do. So you should just collect drinks off people who who illegally stream it from now on. Okay, I'll take pity drinks. I'm all right with that. <laughs> Look, thank you. Th- thank you so much. Genuinely brilliant. I appreciate it, guys. All the best. Thanks, Kara. Playing us out tonight is an Edinburgh-based hip-hop artist who has created music with some of Scotland's top musicians in that genre. If Neil Farrell's colourful language hadn't already earned us an R rating, I'm pretty sure his fellow countrymen would have with this offering. From his 2016 album of the same name, this is Scotch Hop at its very best and most provocative. This is Word, SOS and God Save the Public. Check. I'm an extremist. My ratings like bomb making procedures. False flag your demeanor. Fall back from the theatre. The news ain't real life and neither is real life if you believe in her This is sound bites and serial ad breaks Propaganda face to face with a blank space Fuck's sake, maybe one day you'll thank me Cause I can't believe all the things that you can't say Nobody wants to step to where that's normal behaviour They argue like kids who kicked a ball into their neighbours No kids ain't kicking about with no cares they killing online, Call of Duty multiplayer Wake up! It's been a long time but I came along fine Yes, Drew Divine, fuck the rest
Euphoric, an alcoholic On the bar's constant I'm Constantine With his demon dreams and her screams Lack of profit I'm argumentative I can my shit Stuck in my views but adds to my penmanship My pen gets lit Similar to incense sticks And the room's intense with some inverted spits I've been at it since a kid With small Lego bricks trying to build a bridge What's the point in what you've written Unless you strike a chord or have something to admit Something to admit And I know it might sound a little crazy But that's what creativity made me Wake up! It's been a long time but I came along fine Yes, Drew Divine Fuck the rest Thank you again to Nick and Cara. Join us next week when we'll have more news from the WSOP main event and another show chock full of top drawer guests. We'll be talking to WSOP November 9er Kenny Hellert and recent WSOP bracelet winner and online legend Chris Mormon. In the meantime, if you want to follow the WSOP progress of Unibet Ambassadors Diva Byrne and of course our host Darrow Carney, check out their vlogs, blogs and other social media via Twitter at at Baltic Blonde and at Darrow Carney. Also a big shout out to Unibet commentator Mark the Conv Convy and World of Warcraft MVP and Unibet Esports sit and go winner Alan Widman also playing the main this week. So until next week from Dara, Ian and myself, good night and good luck. Thank <laughs> you.